Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And we are back, baby. Woo! On today's episode, Brett is finally revealing what he's been up to the last two weeks, and really the last two years, because he's been on quite the journey. It's very personal, and it's something he hasn't really discussed in public before. So buckle in. It's quite the story. And then... I am covering mystery content, something that Brett didn't even know about. In fact, I had him choose between two different options. So you think I'm going to tell you now? You're crazy. You just got to go along for the ride with us. Let's do it. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett, oh my God, it is so good to see you, man. I haven't talked to you in a, a long time. Yeah. How, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. How you doing? Oh, dude, uh, actually, <laughs> other than not really being able to ride my one wheel for the last few weeks because I broke my toe jumping over the couch, I'm fine. It's, yeah, uh, it's just now sports. getting better. Yeah, I never, I never get hurt doing anything interesting. It's literally always running down the stairs like an idiot, jumping over the couch, jam my little toe, and so now, like when I write, when I'm writing, my front foot is cramping up because I can't put any weight on the outside of it. But it's just about healed up. So I'm doing good, man. What about you, you got something been happening? Uh, I've just been hanging out a little bit. Oh yeah, is that why we weren't doing our show? <laughs> You just needed a break. <laughs> Had to catch up on some uh, Netflix. Um, no, actually, I did want to say thanks for holding down the show. It's actually been like the, I'd say probably the most stressful, busy two weeks of my life. And it's actually been, uh, I would say, the second uh, greatest accomplishment of my life short of uh, marrying my soulmate, Bree, of course. But uh, But thanks for holding down the show. Uh, when you talked about Brett juice, I just, I (laughs) took this long bath after my stressful (laughs) excursion and I thought I got to hydrate, soak up all the Brett juice. You take a bath in your own sweat. (laughs) Is that what Brett juice is? Sweat? I mean, I don't know what you excrete, but (laughs) you tell me. If, uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, then you haven't been listening to, the uh, Josh Solo Diversify Your Podcast Portfolio episodes, but there are some great um, content recommendations on there. So I urge you to check them out. And But of course, you know what I'm talking about because you, you just couldn't wait to get the two of us back together again. And you listen to the show religiously every week. I know how you are. Yeah, you guys are hardcore. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, so you want to get into what are it? You, yeah, oh. man, what do you got going on? Tell me... You got a little bit of a story yeah. for us, right? I do a little bit, and I've I think I we've kind of like uh, t- touched on this a little bit, or like beat around the bush. And I, you know, a lot of people that are close to me, I think know a little bit about what happened. I mean, some don't, and this is not something. This is not something I'm keeping a secret, but it's also not something that. Um, I'm trying to like I don't know project uh, out onto a podcast until now. But, yeah, you haven't uh, really talked about any specific details. No, I don't think here. I have. 
Yeah, I think I think I wanted to get this. I don't know, just get a little further along in this process. But I mean, there there's a very specific reason that I haven't been flying airplanes for the last two years, um, which you know it, it was not really by choice. It was actually a a pretty major event in my life, and probably the most pivotal and ground changing event. Uh, so this all started back in 2018. The particular event in question, it was in October, and I attended a concert. It was actually at Red Rocks. Res, if you're familiar with the Canadian DJ, (laughs) well, two days later, I was in uh, training at my, the company that I worked for, and you know, I, I, I had the best flying job in the world. I was flying the 747. The 400, the Dash 8, and the LCF, uh, which is the kind of big beluga, um, the dream lifter. It carries the 787 parts. Anyway, I was flying a 747 around the world, two weeks on, two weeks off. I mean, it, it 100% uh, supported my wife and I's lifestyle of traveling and having these long periods of time off where we could be in the Airstream or we could travel overseas and go to Japan together, go to Switzerland um, you know, and I honestly thought at 27 years old, after working in the airline industry and the aviation industry as first a flight instructor, and then as a regional airline pilot, as a first officer and a captain, and then flying private jets, charter jets, uh, as a first officer and a captain, like when I got this cargo job, I mean, I, I thought this is the company that I'm retiring with. This is my job for life. And honestly, I mean, it was the greatest flying job I think uh, possible. And uh, I blew it up. I ruined it. Uh, I took something at that concert that doesn't mix with flying. And I I mean, I had a bit of a problem. Like I I was, uh, you know, having fun and doing things on my days off that don't mix with being a professional pilot. And it caught up with me. And so there I was in training and, you know, totally in denial that I had any kind of issue going on, uh, you know, and, and part, part in my defense. And I realized that this is, it may sound a little bit like justification, but I I do want to say that I never operated an aircraft or anything like that, um, in an unsafe manner. But despite that, you know, this is the training environment. I'm on company property. I was there to do my annual training and and uh, do my um, you know once a year check ride to make make sure that I can still operate the aircraft. And uh, uh, anyway, I had a uh, pop up random test, and uh, shortly after that night, turned myself uh, and I call I called my union and I said, you know. Uh, I just took a test and I don't think I'm going to pass. And that kind of began the journey of uh, where I'm at right now. So uh, that is <laughs> such a nightmare. <laughs> I, I remember, I don't want I me mean to cut you off, but yeah. I remember um, you were in town like right when this happened. And I remember I called you and I called Bree and I was like, Oh, Hey, are we going to hang out? And, I remember getting like these really cryptic messages from Bree and her saying like something serious has come up. I don't think we're going to be available. And you guys were only going to be in town for like a couple of days or something. And we'd been planning to hang out. But 
even, you know, like I did, I had no idea what was going on, but that is like the kind of message. It's like very cryptic and it's very like, it's very kind of like broad and it's, it's a little bit of like a deflection. And that's the kind of thing that like, it made me worry. And I started worrying about like all the horrible things that could have happened. It was, you know, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that this is what it could have been. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, so just to give you a little bit of background then on what happened after that, there is this program in, in aviation, which I did not know about. I actually had just in, in all my years flying, I had never heard of HIMS, the human intervention motivation study. It's been around since the 1970s. It's this industry wide program. That's kind of this collection of, um, the FAA, airlines, unions, doctors, and they're all working together to try to save careers and enhance air safety and rehabilitate pilots. So, you know, my one path forward, if I wanted to continue to ever fly a plane, uh, was to uh, enter into the HIMS program. And at the time, you know, I had, I had just heard a little bit about this just a, just a, like maybe six months to a year before. And unfortunately the context of it wasn't great. Uh, so it was, Oh God, I hope <laughs> I never end up in there. No, actually. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. I was in um, Germany riding bikes with some uh, 767 captains that, uh, you know, I was telling them that I had kind of a bad experience with a captain that I was flying and, you know, overwhelmingly, I had positive experiences. I flew with just some of the greatest aviators and greatest captains of my career the last couple of years uh, at the company I was with. And, uh, you know, I had this one bad experience. I was talking about it with these great guys that I was just kind of spending some of my layover downtime with. And they kind of said, oh, I think he's in the HIMS program. That kind of uh, changes people. And, you know, so unfortunately it wasn't the gra- the greatest mm-hmm. introduction. Um <clears throat> you know, so next next thing I know, the the very first process in hymns is I go to rehab. So here I go. I flew to Knoxville, Tennessee for 30 days of just like it sounds, uh drug and alcohol rehab. I oh, went through man. like uh, you know, t- taking like a P test and a breathalyzer and, and uh going through detox with people that had been drinking every day for years and you know so forth and all, all kinds of all mean, with pilots or uh, just like there was general actually, public there so th- this there was a it, anybody could go to this but it, there was quite a few pilots there was quite a few uh, medical professionals so there was uh, a dentist there was um, some nurse practitioners. There's a lot of railroad as well. So it was predominantly aviation and railroad, actually. Mm. I'd say about 75%. But, you know, it, it's a good thing that I went in with an open mind and got real honest with myself real quickly and said, okay, you know, this happened for a reason. Like, it wasn't just a once-off, you know. I, I've been making a lot of mistakes in my life, and it was bound to happen. And and, you know, when you come into something like that with an open mind, you start to realize um, that there are a lot of great tools there and there are personal things that need to be addressed. And my career is worth it. And more important, my health 
and my sanity and my body uh, is worth making serious changes. You know, one of the things they said early on is like, the only thing that you have to change is everything. <laughs> oh, that's easy. Doesn't turns sound like much of a commitment. Uh, turns out it's not wrong. Um, <laughs> oh, man. But uh, another thing right off the bat that was a really positive experience is like, I met some great guys there, great guys and gals. Like, I. I met some pilots that, and you know, I, I hope that this doesn't scare people. If anything, I think that this should encourage people. And this is like one of the things that I want to do with this experience is I want to be extremely open about it. And I want to, sh- I want to talk about it. I want to share about it. And of course it, it does, I have to find the right time. It does take a little time to sort of understand things, um, my place in it, what I can contribute, but you know, moving forwards, it's one of the things that I want to be able to do is to explain to people what the HIMS program is, how it helps pilots, how it helps passengers, how it helps aviation safety as a whole, which is something that I've always been extremely passionate about. And, you know, I want to take away some of that stigma because, I mean, one of the things that the FAA has really embraced with this program is the disease model of addiction. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but, you know, this is this has been kind of the current latest uh, scientific understanding of alcoholism and addiction is that it is a disease. Limbic system? Well, I mean, you know, it doesn't always necessarily have like a genetic predisposition, but there is a genetic component to it. It is something that unfortunately is on the rise in the United States and I think globally, and I'm sure... Uh, continues to rise, especially during times of increased stress, like the one that we're in involving a pandemic and an election and, a, you know, a nation completely divided and so forth. Um, Is there an election going on right now? You know, I heard something about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, part of, it's part of my path to talk about all the great people that I, <laughs> that I went to rehab with because, you know, it really kind of took down my walls as like, okay, there's some great people here. Maybe I'm not a terrible person, right? And it and it took and it helped me realize that there is uh, you know, a disease isn't your fault, although you have to take responsibility for your actions and you have to make the right actions and take the right steps to make sure that you keep things in check. Right. So that was kind of the first thing that happened. Um, so getting out of there, that's when Brie and I moved our Airstream to Park City, Utah, and, uh, you know, kind of started this journey that involved that first year, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of um, group therapy, a lot of, uh, I had to do a, uh, I had to have a psychiatric evaluation that I do every year with a psychiatrist. I had to do a neuropsychological aviation evaluation from a, a neuropsychologist that was basically measuring to see if I did any um, cognitive damage or, you know, any if I had any loss of faculties. So, you know, it's just been this like, oh, and of course, drug and alcohol testing. I do uh, 14 of those random Every year, I have a special AME now, an aviation medical examiner that it specializes within HIMS. I've had to, you know, send all sorts of reports to the FAA. I mean, it's, and there's, there's 
basically two things that you need to fly an airplane. Okay, so one of them is a medical, and that says that you're medically fit to fly. So if you have some kind of disability, you know, it doesn't necessarily disqualify you, but you have to prove to the FAA that it will not be a concern or will not hinder your ability. It's not to, a liability. Sure, exactly. It's not going to like pop up when you're 30,000 right. feet and all of a sudden exactly can't control the aircraft. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, usually, and it depending on what type of medical you, you um, get, kind of depends on what privileges you have. Like if you're a commercial pilot, if you fly for compensation or hire, you have to have at least a second class. The most basic is a third class. They have something called basic med now, which is the That's kind what of you a, have to get to be a tandem instructor in sky. Oh, really? A third class. Uh, oh, a third class medical. Okay. Yeah. Ah, I did not know that. Um, you know, ATP acting as a pilot in command has to have a first class medical. So, there, you know, there's all these different... Um, kind of restrictions associated with them. Well, anybody in the HIMSS program immediately is disqualified for a Ugh, medical. So crushing. So, so all of these things uh, that I was doing, all of, all of this stuff was basically to prove that I was medically competent and to get my first class medical back. Now, um, it took two years <laughs> to get my first class medical. My paperwork was in after about six or seven months, but you know, things don't move quickly with the FAA. Uh, I was not their priority. You know, any little error in paperwork means another nine months of waiting. It, it's my God. It, it is a, it's a very, very taxing experience. And, you know, on the, on the other hand, it's, you know, one of the gifts that this experience has brought me is like it's brought me back to skydiving. It's brought me back to action sports like one wheeling. It's, you know, we're making this podcast together because it's like, okay, I can't just sit here and wait for this piece of paper to come from the FAA to live my life. Like, I need to find other avenues, I need to look for other uh, career opportunities, right? Well, the so in my case, uh, things got a little bit messier and a little bit murkier because that's that at, bread juice is murky. <laughs> it is some murky juice. So um, there was a little bit of an added complication with me. So uh, on top of losing my medical, because what I took, what what I tested positive for, uh, was considered illegal from the federal standpoint, from the FAA, they also revoked my pilot's license. Now, what this means is they take it away. So all my, and, and there's different, like the medicals, there's different types of licenses. Like you could go out and with 50 hours, you could get your private. And then with the right experience and the right qualifications, you could then get your instrument rating, which allows you to fly into clouds and under instrument flight rules or class A uh, airspace to fly for compensation or higher, you need your commercial. Well, I had kind of the the PhD, if you will, of pilot licenses. The The airline transport pilot or the ATP is kind of the highest echelon. Um, I received that. The, the rules have changed on this a little bit, but, you know, when I was hired at my first airline, I did not have an ATP. I had a multi-engine commercial to operate as a first officer. It was when I upgraded to captain 
that I received my airline transport pilot as well as my first type rating in the Beechcraft 1900. Now, this isn't something that you just get in over the course of even a few or several years. This is something that you have been working on basically since you were a child, correct? Well, I started flying gliders when I was 15, and I think I got my ATP um, and my first type rating when I was about 20 or 21. So, yeah, I mean, it took me years and, you know, at least 1,500 hours of flight time. I probably had closer to 2,000 hours. <laughs> and I imagine this is there's also a component of something like this of your personal identity of like who you see Brett being is wrapped up in that pilot's license. I mean, I know that I, I can't help but identify myself based on like the things that I've spent all my time on, you know, like spending my entire adult life on skydiving. Now, like just skydiving is just a, like, it's like a piece of my soul that I identify myself with. And so I imagine that's like, a very disheartening blow to have to take for them to take that away from you. You know, it's very, it's interesting that you brought that up because this, you know, uh, once again, I didn't really like uh, plan on how I was going to talk about this. I'm just kind of going with the flow. Um, but I am glad that you brought this up because that was something that I struggled with so much, especially for the first year. And actually, you know, why I went back to skydiving because I started to think, what are the things that brought me joy? What are the things in my life that I that I cared about before I really like dove so deeply into my career? Um, because not only was this a problem for me, but I suspect that this is something that almost every American deals with is you know d- defining themselves by the way that they make money. I mean, it, it you know to to maybe an unhealthy degree. I mean, we all have to pay the bills, right? But you know, we have a we have a culture that is so focused on, you know, what what's the first question you ask somebody when you're making small talk? You say, "What do you do?" "What do you do?" Where, Not, "Where'd you get those shoes?" <laughs> I I've never asked somebody that. <laughs> that doesn't sound like me. You know, when you ask just like introducing yourself to somebody or, you know, meeting somebody for the first time, you ask them, what do you do? And when and if you, it's boring, I'm out of here. <laughs> and when, I mean, when you've, when you've just lost everything, uh, so I lost my medical and then the FAA took away my pilot's license and then my company decided to terminate me. You know, you start to wonder like what you're good for. If Podcasting. you can't make any money and you aren't even qualified you're just like overnight uh all the things that you've worked so hard to accomplish of the, the the previous decade plus were just stripped away so you know i think it was i think it was in retrospect you know just another aspect of the growth of this process and you know just another challenge to overcome but yes i mean i think especially i i can't speak for other pilots but for this pilot, for me, my identity was certainly wrapped up in what I did. And, it, you know, not in necessarily a bad way. Like, I just loved my work. I really, really enjoyed what I did. I cared about airplanes and aviation safety and doing a good job and the places that I traveled to. And I felt good about the work that I did. Um, so, yeah, I <laughs> that was difficult. 
So what um, does that lead us kind of to what's been going on these yeah. last few weeks? So I waited two years to get my medical. It uh, kind of came out of the blue not too long ago. And so I decided to follow through and get my uh, pilot's licenses back, my certificates back. And um, that wasn't an easy task. So one of the new requirements to qualify for an ATP is to do an ATP CTP. uh, So it's an ATP certification training program course. So of those acronyms, (laughs) they gotta love the acronyms. So it was like a, I, I got to fly a, an Airbus A320 simulator at the United Training Center and do a couple days at ground school. And that was to qualify for my written test, which, by the way, I had to take all my written tests again, which it, any pilots out there, they're probably groaning listening to this because that's not a fun experience. So I had to do my private instrument commercial. And then, of course, the ATP written after I did the ATP CTP course. And then all of this was to qualify to uh, basically be able to take my practical check rides again, which involves going up with a FAA-designated examiner, a DE, to prove in an airplane that you meet the standards and requirements for the private, the instrument, the commercial, and the ATP. So there- That took you years to get <laughs> That took previously. me years to get. Oh, now, the, the difference is- That you know, sucks. The, what the FAA- um, cannot take away from you is your experience. So all of my, you know, thousands of hours, I have over 5,000 hours of professional flight time. Um, you know, the, that experience still counts towards the application of any rating or certificate, but I had not flown an airplane for two years. Where's the key go? (laughs) And I also, uh, have not flown a small uh, piston aircraft also in several years. I, I think, uh, I mean, once I left as a flight instructor, I think about 2010 was when I got hired at Great Lake. Maybe it was, I don't know. So sometime a long time ago, when once I started flying turboprops, I, nev- I never really flew a single-engine piston uh, airplane again, except for maybe just a handful of times. So... There is this, there's, a, I think there's only two places in the country, and I just found out about the second. There's really one place, there's one place that specializes in this. They do airline recertifications because, wouldn't you know it, I'm not the only one that this has happened to. There's been others before me, and there's going to be others uh, again. But there's this place in Iowa, in Pella, Iowa, and, uh, you know, they, they basically get you into a small plane and, and do ground with you. And you just, you fly like two, three times a day and you spend hours studying and hours with an instructor, you know, preparing for the oral and talking about everything that's changed since you were a, a professional pilot or, you know, all of the things that you never used. I mean, airspace 
was not something that I thought about on a consistent basis because when you fly from Chicago to Hong Kong, you are always talking to an air traffic controller. You are always in controlled airspace. You're flying in the clouds under instrument flight rules. You're not worried about VFR, daytime cloud clearance requirements and class golf airspace. You know what I'm saying? Like it is a totally different environment when you're flying as a professional aviator for an airline or a cargo company, then uh, the the knowledge that you have to sh- explain or show or the practical skills on like a private pilot check ride, right? But you, to get your instruments, you have to have your private. To get your commercial, you have to have your instrument. To get your ATP, you have to have your commercial. So in literally the span of like 10 days, I flew these two airplanes that I had never flown before with some guys that I'd never met. And at the end of it, I took four check rides in two days and came out successful. And so I am now once again, an ATP multi and commercial single. So I'm a pilot pilot again. Oh my God. That is so awesome, dude. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my long way of saying, um, you know, I'm back, baby. Thanks for holding down the fort. Um, I I hope you don't, uh, you know, I hope that you don't judge um, judge me too negatively. I hope that you can find some positivity for me sharing this experience because I, you know, I, I want I want to make aviation a better industry. I want to contribute to it, and you know, I. It's just it it this is this can be a little bit of a difficult thing for me to talk about but i i take i i think this is a step in the right direction well i know that i've i mean we've been we've probably been friends for 12 years something like that maybe and when i met you you were just a wee lad <laughs> which is not something i ever say about anyone i don't know why i said that now but <laughs> I remember that you were just slathered in it. (laughs) But I remember, you know, always being impressed with just like your dedication and your intelligence and your ability to like see these goals through. But at the same time, there was like this coupling with this desire to like ride the edge. And we had a joke, teach Brett a lesson he will soon forget because you, you loved to just push and push and push. And you were, I mean, like with base jumping and skydiving, and we've talked about things that have changed with your skydiving now. And, you know, you, I I feel that this has been like this huge growth process for you because I know that you've come out like on this side of it as just a much more mature, and I'd say like probably like a more complete person because now you have the balance to go with like your intelligence and your raw talent that you already had and just like your aggressiveness and willing to push the line but part of pushing the line is knowing like where your boundaries need to be and i have noticed this huge change in you over the last i'd say probably about the last year where you are i'd say now you're like now you're an adult brett and (laughs) (laughs) And that's hard for me to say because I'm not even one. So congratulations. Now you're ahead of me in the adult game. But it's it's, really, it's really awesome, dude. It's I I appreciate you. It's a good look on you. 
I appreciate it. I mean, I've learned so much about sobriety and recovery and 12-step programs. And, you know, the fact that, it, like, this process has not been easy. I mean, there are so many hoops to jump through for the FAA. And guess what? Just because I have my medical now and just because I have my license back does not mean the work ends. Like, this is a lifetime thing. Like, I will be monitored very closely under a microscope by the FAA year <laughs> after year after year. I mean, it is it is an ongoing process. You should tell them to subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> They'd love it. <laughs> but, you know, I am also super grateful that there is a path for me forwards. I am super grateful to be able to turn my mistake and the things that I've learned into a positive. And I hope that I will one day be able to pay it forward and to help others and to help others um, save their career before they ruin it and maybe get some help for things that they're dealing with and problems that they're having before they get things stripped away from them unnecessarily. So, you know, it is, it is, um, it's an ongoing process. I'm still learning a lot. I have a lot of people, both pilots and non-pilots that this process has kind of brought me to that. I know, I mean, I, I have relationships for life now with some of these, with some of these people. So, I mean, it's, it is, um, definitely one of those things that, that really, just like I heard in rehab, like everything changes. Your entire life, your entire existence changes. Um, but, you know, for all those awkward times when somebody offers me a beer or whatever, and I'm like, nope, don't drink, can't drink, sorry. For all those like little awkward moments, there's those other times where I can really focus on skydiving and not taking risks in skydiving and being like 100% present and 100% sober minded on a Sunday morning when everybody's been up late partying at the drop zone, but I'm like ready to go at 8am because I don't party. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so many amazing things that have been brought into my life as a result of it. And, and maybe one day I'll even be uh, back in the cockpit of the 747. You don't know, you know, it's, Who's to say? Uh, yeah, dude, I'm rooting for you on that step because that seems like the next uh, the next big one. Yeah. And I know this is probably a stupid question, but um, besides FAA study manuals, what else is on your content circuit lately? My <laughs> guess is probably nothing, right? Well, actually, like... As soon as I passed my check rides, I just laid in my hotel in Pella. I had my laptop open. I had my phone in my hand. I had the TV on. I was just like my. I felt like I'd been through, like gone through a blender. My mind playing games was with your feet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> playing video games with my toes. Overload. Yeah. So let's see. I actually have um, partaken in some content recently. I started watching season two of The Mandalorian. I'm about halfway through the first episode. Uh, so good. It's really good. Let's see. I have Yuval Noah Harari's newest book. It's like a comic book. It's Most Sapiens, the graphic novel. Ooh, nice. Uh, yeah, it's, I'm pretty stoked about it. You'll definitely have to check that out. That and uh, man, I know there's some content I was going to talk about, but it totally, totally disappeared from my brain. 
That's all right. Seems like you've been cramming a lot of <laughs> I really have useless knowledge in there anyways. Valuable stuff. Yeah. So what's what's on your content circuit? So the last month I've been going ham on some content, but n- I mean a lot of it has been just total trash. But I found a show on <laughs> quite the endorsement uh, yes, from a contentologist. If you guys want to look that up, just uh just search trash on Google. <laughs> uh I found this show on Amazon Prime called Vikings. I guess this is probably like I don't know, it's from some cable network, but it's this really high budget. They say they say it's like a Game of Thrones killer, but it's it's like a historical show. And it's about the the Vikings in Norway. I think it's like the thirteen hundreds and a lot of it just focuses on like their culture and they ha- how they have like this raider culture where they're you know they're farmers in like the farming season but then in the off season they're kind of like dictated to go out on these raids by their earl who's like their leader it's like a patriarchal society and he like selects these raider teams and he's like all right you guys will sail out to the east and you guys will sail out to the southeast and they just like sail out they hit land they just kill everything that they find steal all their stuff and it's about how like the uh like the evolution of those raiding parties and how they eventually started going west and ended up in England which i guess was a was like a really huge event when it happened because you know the the english had never really had to deal with this kind of like just senseless killing coming out of nowhere coming out of the sea but you all since you're seeing it from the vikings point of view you're also like sympathizing with them which is really awesome because in any other film they would totally be the bad guys but you're like you know you see like their home lives and how the way that they feel about like death and justice and it's really interesting and it's i mean i guess i don't know how historically accurate it is but uh the way they present it you know they definitely don't paint them in perfect light so it you know it kind of lends like some credence to the fact that it's it's probably close to what it was like you know like they're not like bad guys. They just happen to have this culture where it's like, oh yeah, you guys just go out and murder these other ding dongs that don't really have any influence on our life. We just want their stuff. <laughs> it's it's pretty good, man. Very violent too. I've heard good things about it. You're not the first person that's that's uh, brought up Vikings. Yeah, it's good. Check nice. it out. Amazon Prime. Boom. Free if you pay $100 a year for Prime. <laughs> so the opposite of free. Well, maybe it's $100 a year to watch Vikings, but then you get all of Amazon's other services for free. That's Boom. called justification, Flip Brett. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not bad. Well, thanks for listening to my uh, personal history recently. Let's take a quick break, and then hopefully Josh will get personal with some of his personal likes in the world of content. Ooh, content. Clear it out. All right, welcome back to the content clearing house. Josh, I've waited so long to hear your <laughs> sweet, uh, honey-toned vocal cords. <laughs> wow. I don't even know what that means. You could have just listened to the podcast. <laughs> Uh, so Brett, since I've had a while to work on this, yeah. I'm going to give you a choice. I've got oh. a few things prepared. 
So well, this is exciting. Yeah. You want to hear about a book series or do you want to hear about a video game today? I'll let you choose. Dealer's choice. De- dealer's choice. Except I guess choice. actually I'm dealing right now. Yeah. So you, whatever you are, your choice. <laughs> All right. I'll take uh, I'll take uh, book series for 2000, Trebek. Woo. Uh, I don't know if I got 2000 in me. This is more like a 500. All right. All right so. I think this is something that you're familiar with. I may have even suggested this to you in the past, but I'm going to talk about the series of novels by John Scalzi, Old Man's War. Oh, yeah. Is something you've read? Read them. Great. So I know you're going to have some thoughts on this. And this I, is honestly, a, it's been a while, so I don't remember them. So this will maybe things will come to me, but I, I will say one thing before you start. John Scalzi, so Old Man's War was, is it like four books? Three books? Uh, Six books. I think there's a seventh in the works right now, yeah. Okay, so I think I read like three or four books of it, or maybe I read all six. I'm not really sure, but I loved them so much that I went on like a John Scalzi kick, and I read like two or three other books. I read um, The the Android's Dream. It's kind of like a comedic spin on do androids dream of electric sheep yeah i was really yep. into john scalzi for a little bit he he wrote his first book when he was like 40 something right really interesting yeah, guy yeah he, he's like he's a great sci-fi author he's like just a great just a futurist in general because yeah. all of his books deal with like some sort of it's mostly like ramifications of some sort of technology that is conceivable to evolve from where we are now yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, I'm excited. I've chose the book series. It's great. Good choice. So this is a tough one to discuss without bringing up like what the hook of the story is. And it, this is a minor spoiler, but it opens up so many avenues of conversation. And this is something that's revealed in probably the first 50 pages of the book, which always, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sci-fi series that I've read that have this kind of like turn early on and a lot of them i've been like "Ah, i can't really talk about this on the show because i don't want to give away you know like one of the most unique aspects of the story but i'm just gonna warn you guys now and honestly learning this information i think would make me want to read the book even more so that's why i've decided to take this avenue discussing the story so just a little bit of a rundown so this is hundreds of years in the future Humanity is a spacefaring race, and they have a very unique formula for staffing their military. So at the age of 65, humans are eligible to sign up for the military. At the age 75, their term of service begins, and no one on Earth really knows how it works, but they assume that the military does something like organ replacement or like gene therapy to basically like up the elderly population's fighting ability. But the truth is, is so much more interesting and it opens up so much about this world that they live in or this universe they live in. So what happens is humanity has found a way to transfer the consciousness of a person from one body to another. So the colonial union, which is essentially the, the space version of humanity, earth is its own little isolated pocket. And then most of humanity is in the stars and they have genetically engineered these advanced bodies. They're built from the DNA of the enlisted senior citizen, which is taken at the age of 65, but they combine that DNA with several other sources. So they give the new bodies these fighting advantages 
things like low light cat-like eyes. So their eyes, you know, they're like vertical slit and they can see basically in like pitch black. They have green chlorophyll infused skin so they can extract energy from sunlight. And they have these advanced musculatures and bone systems reinforced and as well as this thing they call smart blood, which is essentially a nanobot replacement for blood, which is, it acts as an oxygenating system, but it, it has all these other defensive capabilities, like it's resistant to disease. It can be remotely detonated. So, you know, it's like if one of them is being bit by a mosquito, the mosquito will fly away sometimes and poof, just like burst into a, you know, a little fire puff. So it so has wait, all I'm these. A, I, I, I'm actually remembering. So what's the protagonist's name in this book again? John Perry. John Perry. So it, 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 him and then another female protagonist, there's like a lot of like love making going on when they first get in these new bodies, right? There's like yeah, some so space military orgies and whatnot. Basically, yeah, like so. Like, I remember these this. are all like old, decrepit people. <laughs> yeah, and they they get put into these bodies, which are basically like it's them when they're in their twenties or their early twenties, but they're also in this like superhuman. Their features are like perfectly sculpted. They're all super hot. And so, like <laughs> yeah. a big part of it is, you know, the they think they're like, Oh, we're doing something crazy and bad. And they're all just like going off on each other. Cause they're all like, just so sexy. <laughs> yeah, and then once is- they get to, they get to like basic training and they're, you know, they're, uh, their drill sergeants like, I know what you guys have been doing. You guys have been fucking. So it's just like, <laughs> it's just like expected of them because th- that's what any human would do. Like humans are like so sexual. And they're like, when you're in, in your seventies and you're like, your libido is dead. He's like such a miracle to be blessed with this kind of body, which that's one of the great things about this series is how they start learning to utilize, you know, what they've been given. And that just, that seems to me like a dream come true with my stupid back. Yeah. I would well, love to you get know, my back replaced. <laughs> this is, I mean, it's one of the reasons I love John Scalzi as an author. Cause like, that's exactly what would happen. Like yeah. if you had a bunch of 70 something year olds minds, in like perfect 20 year old bodies, like, like that's exactly what would be happening. And so it doesn't seem uh, like I remember in the book that happening and it didn't seem unnecessary or gratuitous. You're like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's exactly what we do. And it's interesting to bring up minds because minds play like such a huge part in this story. Their entire body is regulated by this semi organic implanted computer in their brain. They call it the brain pal. And that that's like a real stupid name. And they even comment on that. John Scalzi even comments on how like this was unfortunately named the brain pal right after its creation. And that name is just stuck with it because it's such like a downplay of what the brain pal can do. So it's essentially a, it's a communicator, a supercomputer, a library of all known human knowledge, navigation and interface device for all of the colonial unions technology. And the brain pal, they, you know, it's it's basically like having your phone implanted in your head, but also with the advantage of like an augmented reality overlay as as well as like an audio interface where they can hear the brain pal talking to them and they can talk back to it in their mind. They can give it sub vocal commands, but they also use it to integrate with their squads where they will, you know, if their team 
will learn to operate essentially like from the viewpoint of the other soldiers. So they make them run these tests where they have to run an obstacle course, but they have to do it blindfolded and they use the other soldiers viewpoint through their brain pal to navigate the different obstacles, which would give you such a huge advantage in a combat scenario. You would never have to vocalize commands. You could like instantly bring up picture in picture of anyone else's viewpoint on the battlefield. And so that's like essentially what creates the the power of the colonial defense forces, which is the, the CU's military branch. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. For some reason I remember the orgies, but not the brain pal. That's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, you can't be can't be banging a bunch of hot green alien humans without your brain augmented, buddy. It's just <laughs> gross. <laughs> yeah. So all the body swapping brings up several questions about the nature of consciousness, which John Scalzi dives deep into, the, and the swapping process is described in detail. But essentially your consciousness passes from your original body. It's processed through a computer console and then inserted into the new superhuman body. And they describe the feeling of being in two places at once. So once the consciousness has a foothold in the new body, they shut down the link. They, it drops the feeling of being in two places at once. And then the original body is euthanized. And they, that process made me think of like, uh, the movie The Prestige with Hugh Jackman where he's cloning himself for the magic trick. Ugh, such a and good movie. It's so good and so disturbing because he's, you know, he's cloning himself uh, to do the teleported man trick and uh-huh. as he clones himself, the clone falls into like this tank and is drowned and he said that he never knew which one of him was going into the water tank each night, the original or the clone. But since the clone was spawned with all of his original memories leading up to that point, it was essentially a form of immortality. But right. the the one that died had the perception of its own existence coming to an end. And they don't really ever explain in the book, you know, if the if the euthanized body still has any form of consciousness in it. They just shut it down. And from their point of view, it's like John Perry is like, oh, I was there and now I'm here. Right. But brings up all these philosophical questions about, you know, like what consciousness is and if that transferring process is actually killing something intelligent or if you're passing over and bringing everything with yourself. Yeah. This is a great, um, you know, it's one of those things that you don't think too much about what, you know, what it, I don't know. There's, I saw like a YouTube video, I think. I'll have to look around and see if I can find that and post it up on our post it up in our show notes where I put all our our references and links and you can check out our website too, cchpod.com. But good they, plug. <laughs> they this video was explaining all these different scenarios of like, well, what if you had, you know, two people and you swapped their brains. So they had different bodies, but the same brains. You know, are you your brain? Are you your mind? Or are you more than just that? Or like, you know, there's this um, there's this notion, which I believe is true. I have no reason to doubt it, but all the cells in our body are replaced like every seven years or something like that. So we're actually new material every Sounds seven years. Sounds like an years. old wives' tale. 
I don't. I don't think so. I think that. I think that's actually real, because our cells are constantly, you know, doing. So, yeah. I don't know, doing something. But, but, um, you they're know, getting they're, their ATP ratings. They're getting. <laughs> <laughs> they're multi-engine ATPs, huh? Yeah. Good for them. Well, seven years though, you got to start all over. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no. So you know, the other thing is like. Are it without your memory? Are you really your like? It's almost like our our sense of self is almost like an imagination because it's just a collection of looking back, and it's almost like a narrative. Like a lot Ooh. of a lot of people talk about how our sense of self is really just built from a narrative that we're telling ourselves, right? So I don't know. There, it, there's so many like directions you can go with that, and I just love I just love any kind of ex- exploration with that idea. Yeah. It's, that's why this story is so engrossing. I mean this, so I was actually looking into this very same Avenue when I was researching this episode. One thing I came across, which it seems super cheesy when you see it on your Instagram, Facebook timeline, it's got like some stupid inspirational photo behind it, but it, you know, the quote, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. I mean, that's like, I saw that and I was just like scroll past it. And then that just like gets stuck in my head and it, it's, it's kind of like a vantage point. Like we talk about like avatar, how the idea in avatar of like the avatar link being weak and that, that like throws your perception off. And that kind of gives me like a vantage point in the morning when I'm like all groggy and tired and like can't get my brain working. And I could just like, Oh, this must be what it's like to have your avatar link be messed up. And so this is kind of the same thing where like whenever I get up and like my back is hurting and, you know, I'm like having to do all these stretches to get my body working in the morning. I just think about like the body is just the thing that I'm piloting, you know, it's like the life pilot. But what I really am is like my mind or my soul. And that's the, I imagine that's probably why things, why people say inspirational things is to inspire you. And that is a quote (laughs) that was very inspiring to me. But you brought Actually, up also. Uh-huh. Oh, well, I was just gonna say I uh, started following this person on Instagram. He's a fake motivational speaker. He's like, nice. a, it's like a parody account. It's really good, man. Nate Cataranis or something. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to send you some of it. It's it's hilarious. Anyway, great description for audio. <laughs> really, <laughs> he's he maybe like, we'll link it. He really, he really plays with all the, all the, um, like motivational speaker tropes. Let's link that. That sounds good. Yeah, we'll do. So you were saying about, you know, like the, the consciousness is actually the narrative. And that is something that I found exactly a, a, almost an exact quote from Joe, uh, Joseph Ledeau. He's a neuroscientist. He studies survival circuits in the brain. And I saw this interview with Joe Rogan where he said a huge part of consciousness is the ability to create a narrative, which is truly where our sense of self comes from. And, you know, it, is our consciousness a collection of our memories and feelings? Is it the perception of the world around us or our sense of self? Or is it all of those things? But he said that, you know, what really ties all that together is the narrative and like our ability to tell a story about ourselves and it's mm-hmm. you know it's like with when you with you identifying yourself as a pilot you know like that's literally your consciousness 
writing your narrative of who Brett is. Right. And that's exactly. why you have like a stronger idea of who you are than anyone else's because you have basically instant access to that narrative and it's unfiltered. Like you can't lie to yourself about that narrative. I, guess, I mean, I guess you can, but then you end up being a total shithead. <laughs> You'd be a great therapist. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That's totally my calling. <laughs> So let's get back to this story. Uh, we talked about, you know, like them shutting down the body and the scientists in this world, like they don't really even know for sure. It, almost all of them have been through this transfer process and none of them really know the answer to the questions that we were asking about, you know, like, is there still like a sense of self-awareness when the body is euthanized and is there, you know, what are the ramifications deep down of that consciousness transferring? And that's why the writing in this book is so good. It can raise these existential questions. And typically I feel that like when a story refuses to answer those underlying questions and how this stuff works, it's kind of like a bit of a cop out, but it doesn't feel that way in old man's war because the nature of consciousness is already so nebulous to us. And it's such a mysterious part of our own world that, the tech that they use to operate it almost seems like it's running a little bit on faith. Like they know someone has programmed this process and they're all, you know, they're all technicians and operators of the system, but none of them are the people that are looking at the code and understanding exactly what happens. And so they all just kind of turn a blind eye to exactly what's happening to their original body because they're so empowered afterwards. And they have no perception of anything really changing in their mind. And Exa that, exactly how it happened. <laughs> like, yeah. It's what, I mean, that's what, it's exactly what sci-fi is for. It's to inspire yeah. the reader to question the very nature of your reality and vision these scenarios that you would otherwise never really occur to us. And thank God people like John Scalzi have these awesome brains that are able to put this stuff out there for me to consume. Definitely. Yeah. I had an idea reading this and you know i wish that i was like a f all, all inclusive package someone that was able to create their own huge piece of media a movie or a comic book or something but i'd love to see a superhero story involving just one colonial union soldier so when the soldiers are all together and exploring their abilities they basically describe them as being like superheroes like you would see in marvel you know they can like fall from like a hundred feet and just like get up. Like if they break a bone, it heals like Deadpool, you know, like it's healed up in like four hours or something. And eventually that's like totally normalized. And what they're going out to fight in the universe is so threatening that their survival rate is like measured in the months, even with all these enhanced abilities. But if one of these soldiers was isolated amongst normal humans or even like, other alien races that don't share all of these advantages, this, the CU soldiers really would seem like Captain America or something. It's a, like a character with so many advantages that they don't really even seem to be human anymore. It's almost like a Deadpool or Wolverine level of power. And I'd love to see a comic about that. Just like one remaining CU soldier that's carrying all these powers and, I think that would be like, I mean, it would be like watching like Captain Marvel or something. Well, hey, if you've all know Harari can come out with a comic book about of his work, 
then John Scalzi, we know you can too. Get on it, buddy. And you can steal my idea for a story as long as I <laughs> yeah. get to read it. <laughs> Perfect. That's a fair deal. So the uh, the exploration of consciousness doesn't end with the colonial union. The, the story also explores the relationship between intelligence, self-awareness, and consciousness. And it raises the question, like, what's the difference between, I guess, sentience and consciousness? There's a species in the story called the Oban that they they lack any and all superfluous language. They hold no conversations besides fact exchange. They have no descriptors for self, no art, no creative ability. They succeed in sciences and advanced technologies, but have very little in the way of original breakthroughs. And they're described as a conch or an intelligent species with no consciousness. So it's kind of like the question is raised, like is true intelligence what they, if what they have, is it true intelligence or is it merely the ability to solve high level problems? And I've never really thought about there being a separation between intelligence and self-awareness. I've always just assumed that those things exist as a pair, but this book posits that they are these different things and they can exist separately. And I guess me not ever, never occurring to me that those things can exist exist separately is very human of me because intelligence and self-awareness are just so tied to like what being a human is. You know, you, it's, it's almost hard to even, separate those things as different thoughts like i had to i had to write it out and read it for me to actually be able to say those two things as separate that's kind of interesting so do you think there's anything in i don't know i'm trying because i don't remember that that super specifically in the book either is there um like an animal kingdom equivalent or like even ai like because because i know Artificial intelligence, we're starting to make algorithms and computers that actually can create music and art that actually tricks art experts and music experts. It's so good. But I don't, you know, that is that computer, that computer is not like being creative, is it? Like we are just programming it to mimic creativity. I don't know. This is, These are tough questions that you're getting into. But like yeah, it's an like ant, a- like if an ant was smart enough to you know because ants accomplish a lot as a collection like they're like almost one super organism but mostly pheromone based though you know like they most of what ants are doing is following pheromone trails and so it's i mean who knows maybe like the the queen may be intelligent or conscious and specifically choosing what the drones are doing but you know that from what I've read about ants, the drones are primarily following pheromone indicators of what, like, what their job is, where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to pick up, how they get back home. Hmm. I'm just trying. But to Where think is that of coming like a, from? I don't know. I've always, I've always heard it tied to emergence, and it was just like a, um, just like one ant goes one way and picks up a thing, and then if another ant happens to follow it, then a third ant is sure to follow. So it's almost like uh, just this trend towards um, the same pathway, basically like like skiing down a mountain. If you start following those same tracks, those tracks get deeper and deeper, 
um, and and more people are likely to follow those tracks, if you will. Well, that's a bad example because no one wants to follow ski tracks. They want to fri- find the fresh <laughs> pow. But but you know that with it with the example with ants, I think they're like always leaving a pheromone trail. But I don't know. I was just trying to th- what, like I was just trying to find a similar example of like this this race or this species in this book that might make me understand what that would look like in real life it's just seen it is so bizarre it's hard it's hard to imagine well i don't think there's anything like this on our planet because there's no other i guess self-aware or there's no other there's no other species that we can communicate with right and you know like they you know they say that dolphins and whales have a language but it's not like we can translate that but in the book, the Oban, they communicate with these other races through, you know, this convenient MacGuffin of the universal translator that exists yeah. whenever you need to have aliens talk to each other. Got to. And so they can communicate and they can discuss and solve problems with each other, but they don't have personalities. And they any personality that is perceived in them is typically like anthropomorphizing. So when I was looking up anthropomorphizing, I was looking up like dogs because, you know, I think of Polly, my sweet, sweet puppy having a personality and anyone who owns a dog is going to think that. So they were, they were doing these experiments. I found this in neuroscience news and uh, they were testing canine self-awareness using this mirror test. And some animals, such as apes and dolphins, were able to identify themselves in a mirror, but dogs failed to. They they would not recognize themselves on sight. And so these initial scientists were saying that dogs are not self-aware because they look at themselves in the mirror and they just see it as nothing, whatever. They just ignore it. But or, another or researcher... it's another dog, right? They, they see yeah. it. Yeah. And they think it's a well. They don't dog. even treat it. They don't even treat it like that. Like sometimes they'll bark at it, but then like eventually they just like lose interest and like they walk away. That's what like this initial study found. But this other researcher, uh, Roberto Cazzola Gatti, he created a modified mirror test, one that included olfactory feedback. So since dogs, you know, they're primarily uh, audible and olfactory based. He took urine samples from multiple dogs, including the test subjects, and he deposited the test sub, uh, the, t- the samples at different intervals that the dog would run along, kind of like a gauntlet of smells. And the- <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. That would work great with your human nose, Brett. <laughs> so the, the test subject dogs, they would routinely spend much less time on their own urine samples, and sometimes they would just simply pass it over and move on to the others. But this researcher, Gotti, surmised that this does indicate some level of self-awareness in the dogs with the ability to recognize their own scent and to ignore it. So it's, I mean, it's not conclusive, but it does make it seem like dogs are at least aware of the sensory feedback coming from their own body and they can identify. And it's like when they mark their own territory, you know, that, that's kind of something you see dogs do all the time. And that's clearly, you know, like that's clearly a way that they know, like this is a place that I have been before. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just a kind of self awareness that we don't, uh, you know, associate with as much. It's pretty. That's interesting. So when Polly farts, does does Polly know that Polly is farting, or is Polly 
like looking back, like who is that? Oh, she's definitely woken herself up farting. <laughs> yeah. So I would assume that <laughs> she was aware. Dad, was that you? <laughs> so you know whether that indicates a consciousness as a human of understanding. Who can say? But it is very interesting, and it gives me hope that I'm not just anthropomorphizing my own dog. Yeah. I would like to think that there is something behind those beautiful puppy eyes. Yeah. Dogs are smart. <laughs> Such good boys. <laughs> well, so the way to wrap it up, you know, the way that this book presents a universe with these many different dangerous competing species of aliens, these thousands of colonized planets, and the dangers of non-native species living on new worlds it kind of, this made me think about how strange and significant it is that we exist here at all. You know, it seems so normal since we don't really know any different, but with a slight change of perspective, I can definitely imagine being deposited here instead of being born here. And I can imagine this planet not having a chemical architecture that's compatible with humanity, which is something they talk about in the book. And I can imagine a universe where the ability to step off this planet into space was so commonplace that it's essentially the same thing as getting an Uber. Those are all thoughts that, that this book and sci-fi in general put into my head. And it makes me think like spaceship earth. Like we are like hurtling through the cosmos at millions of miles an hour, whatever it is planets travel at. And that like that spatial displacement, another concept I've seen in sci-fi that I thought was extremely interesting was uh, when some of these like really hard science books dive into time travel and they talk about if you were to time travel when you know you might travel back to a certain era but the earth would be in a completely different location in space so if you traveled back like you know two years you would basically like if you plopped out right here in the same location you would end up floating in space and your blood would boil off and you would die and those are just like these amazing, sci-fi concepts that would never be in my head otherwise and i love that that you know i love the genre can be so entertaining and appeal to all my preferred subjects things like military aliens tech futurism all that stuff it can still make me have these deep thoughts about the nature of existence you know that's the it's the power of sci-fi it's why it's my favorite genre What's and i best? think that i think john uh john scalzi's old man's war is also one of the best that exists so check it out. It is not going to waste your time. Well, geez, Louise, I have missed this, Josh. <laughs> so good, man. <laughs> Old Man's War, John Scalzi. It's a good one. I'll have to revisit that. You heard it here first, folks. Old Man's War. So, uh, yeah, well, thanks, Josh. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We really Please appreciate it. Please plug the show. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate having friends. you. Tell your friends, tell your peeps, tell your aunts to subscribe, your ant farm. They'll follow the <laughs> pheromone trail. And if we are working now on growing the listenership of this show. So if you do love the Content Clearinghouse, if you tell one friend and they start listening, that helps us immensely. And it's really the greatest way for us to grow the listenership and keep bringing the show to you guys. Exactly. We also have a Facebook and we have an Instagram. You can follow us at uh, The Content Clearing House. Uh, cchpod.com is our website. Tune in next week. We're going to come back. It'll be my turn to share some content, and we can't wait to see you there. 
Sweet Sweet Brett Juice.